We're going to let the uh, children be dismissed for junior church going. And I'd like you to turn your Bibles to the book of Acts chapter 6 and 7. Acts chapter 6 and chapter 7. Uh, Chapter 6 will just be for quick reference, and then uh, chapter 7 is where we're going to spend our time this morning. Uh, Next Sunday we'll begin our series on the discussion about... uh, Biblical truths that you can build your life upon, laying a foundation of solid biblical truth. And we're going to go through a series of 10 to 12, what many of you have submitted as favorite passages of scriptures, passages of scriptures that I think are essential for you to know in order to live an effective Christian life, okay? It's not to say they're more important than the rest of the Bible, but there are certain passages which jump into your mind when you think about the Word of God and how it has ministered to your life over the years as a Christian. So this morning, I want to approach this passage of Scripture, which is, it's a difficult story. It's really about the martyrdom of the first proclaimer of the gospel that's recorded in the book of Acts. Okay, It's the martyrdom of Stephen. That story ends at the end of chapter 7. When you come into Acts chapter 6, you have the discussion about the establishment of a group of individuals who are tasked with serving the church of Christ, with being literally servants or ministers to others within the context of church life. Verse 8 of chapter 6 picks up on the, if you will, the the storyline of the text. It says, Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. So you find this story moves from a focus on the group of apostles to a group of seven servants in the church, and then do a focus on one individual. The rest of chapter 6 and chapter 7 focus on one life fully given to God. Okay, so progression. Twelve disciples, apostles, getting their feet on the ground. Seven others chosen to serve and minister within the context of the church. Within that group of seven, a unique individual who is going to stand for God in a courageous way that ultimately in this story is going to cost him his very life. So it is his life that I would like to focus on this morning. Verse 9 of chapter 6. Opposition arose, however, from the members of the synagogue of the freemen, as it was called. Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia. These are Greek-speaking Jews who were dispersed when Israel was overrun in 586 and 722, who have now come back to live in Jerusalem, but they carry the customs of the Greek world. Okay, and there's tensions within the church and tensions over the proclamation of the gospel of Christ as the fulfillment of Judaism. Okay, it's in the midst of that tension that we find ourselves this morning. These men began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against his wisdom or the spirit by whom he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men We have heard Stephen speak words of blasphemy against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin, which is the group of 70 men who were the religious leaders of the city of Jerusalem. Okay, so Stephen is thrust into this context of 70 leaders who have the right and the authority to take his very life. And here's what they say, verse 13. They produced false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stopped speaking against against this holy place, that is the temple where the Sanhedrin would meet, and against the law. 
For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs that Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, this solitary man who the text moves from 12 to 7 to 1. Okay, who is now standing in an amazing place. They looked at him and they saw that his face was like that of an angel. Okay, what is that reminiscent of? It's reminiscent of the great prophet in the Old Testament, Moses, who encountered God on Mount Sinai, and when he came down, what did he have? He had like a glow. He was literally alive, enlivened by the very presence of God. Stephen is bearing this glorious sense of power while he is in a place where he is under attack, getting ready to lose his life. It's an amazing account. Chapter 7 and verse 1. It says, Then the high priest asked him, Are these charges true? Okay, what Stephen does then is launches into an extended discourse following through the storyline of the Old Testament. Okay, and here's the basic flow of the story that Stephen gets. He gives a courageous, pointed, and condensed history of the nation of Israel in this chapter. Verses 1 through 8, the story of the calling of Abraham and the establishing of the people that he's talking to. Okay, the Sanhedrin has a Jewish heritage. What does Stephen do? Stephen says, let me start at the beginning. Okay, and he tells them the story of Abraham, how Abraham is called out of the earth of Chaldees. By faith he trusts God, moves to a place that he never saw. And what does God do? God establishes a group of people, the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, the people or the assembly of God. Verses 9 through 19, he goes into a discussion about the son of Jacob who is rejected by the people represented by the Sanhedrin. Okay, the 11 sons of Jacob reject the youngest son, Joseph, and send him off into slavery. Okay, you should start to have in your mind echoes from the New Testament storyline. Okay, what is, what is Stephen doing? He is very craftily showing Israel that they have been guilty of this form of rejection and oppression all along, particularly and pointedly in the story of Joseph. But what does God do? God protects Joseph, raises him up, and saves the nation of Israel through the apparent sacrifice of Joseph. Ding, ding, the picture of Christ. 20 through 36, it's a big chunk. Moses, God's deliverer. Israel stays in Egypt for an extended period of time, over 400 years. God raises up a man named Moses to be what? To be a picture of Jesus and to be the greatest prophet in the Old Testament. And what does he do? He has the task of delivering Israel through a man from the clutches of Pharaoh and the nation of Egypt. Okay? That is the work that Moses does. Verse 51, Stephen then starts to go to where the story pushes. Okay, notice in verse, let's pick up in verse 54. It says, well, uh, verses 51 and 52 say this. Stephen says, just like your fathers. Okay, now what has he talked about the fathers? About their behavior along the way that wasn't very much like the people of God. And what is Stephen doing? Stephen's not going to look away from that behavior. He's going to call them on it. He's going to call them on what they did to Jesus Christ because they need to know the truth. And at the end of this story, something amazing and unexpected and powerful happens. And you'll see the connection. Okay, let me give you this hint. Okay, one member of the Sanhedrin was a man named Saul of what? Of Tarsus. 
Okay, Stephen is going to call out the Sanhedrin, and as he calls out the Sanhedrin, what is he doing? He's calling out a man in the Sanhedrin. Okay? So watch what happens when I get to the end of this discussion. Okay? So Stephen says, you're just like your father's, verse 51. Was there ever a prophet that you did not persecute? When I read this, I'm thinking, Stephen is like one heck of a courageous man. I mean, unbelievable courage. Those that killed Christ have already threatened Peter and James. He stands in front of them. What does he say? Was there ever a prophet? Was there ever someone who spoke the word of God to you that you didn't reject? What is it? It's a plea of repentance. It's a call to accountability for the treatment of those that have come and spoken of the grace of God. And then he says this. He says, they even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. The hope of the entire Old Testament that starts in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, Stephen is saying, everyone that spoke about that, you guys killed him. Why? Because they were saturated with religion, sustained by self-righteousness that was, however, inadequate. Paul will later point that out. He says, they even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. End of verse 52. And now, you betrayed and what? Murdered him. And what has Stephen just done? He's just accused the powers that be in Jerusalem of murder. Okay, you know what that takes? That takes incredible courage. It always takes courage to speak the full truth of God's word. Stephen lays it on the line. And in verse 54, when they heard this, they said, Stephen, we love you. And thank you for sharing the truth with us. Right? Every time you share the gospel, isn't that the response you get? People say, thank you. Now what happens? It says they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. The message says they went wild. A rioting mob, catcalls, whistles, and invectives. To say what? We, quite frankly, as religious men, do not approve of what you have said. But Stephen, it just you read that word, you're like, but Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven, saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open, and the Son of Man standing. Okay, think about this. You killed him, but look, I see him standing. Folks, just let yourself go into the story here. Those that need to see him, Stephen's saying he's alive. You rejected him, but he lives and he's ready to intercede for you. If we will come to him in simple and powerful, life-changing faith. At this they covered their ears. Yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. The first martyrdom in the New Testament. Fascinatingly, the word martyr in the New Testament is always translated, and the word literally in the Greek is martyrs. The word is always translated witness. Why? Because the death of Christian martyrs was not to initiate a jihad. The death of Christian martyrs was not to destroy life. It was always meant to do what Jesus did. 
It was always meant to lay the seedbed of life. One writer said this. He said, The church of Jesus Christ grows in the soil of the blood of the saints. The death not to destroy others, but to sacrifice like Jesus did, courageously, so that others may know the King of life. Not to destroy. And let me say this to you this morning, especially for you college students. Many people in history have done horrific things in the name of Christianity. Okay, that is not to be confused with what biblical Christianity has stood for throughout history. Okay, many have hijacked Christianity and made it a political force that killed. True Christianity, biblical Christianity, has always been characterized by a willingness to lay down one's life so that others might live. So what I'd like to do this morning, real quickly, is think about this story from the perspective of legacy. Okay, it's Father's Day, and so it's appropriate for me to kind of look at this story and say, okay, as a dad, and for the rest of you as individuals, young people, ladies, okay, we need to ask a question sometimes, and that is this. What is my legacy? I know Stephen's legacy. I'm going to lay it out for you in a few minutes. All of us leave a legacy. I had written down on my notes, how do you want to die? And then I said, that could be misunderstood. Okay, I don't mean, how do you want to die? I mean, how do you want to be remembered when you're, what do you want to be found doing? Do you want your life to count at your death or do you want it just to be the end of a retirement that you spent in a completely self-absorbed life? What do you want it to be? How do you want to die? How do you want people to think about the life that God gave you and that you lived for His glory? How do you want to be remembered? Because I know how I remember Stephen when I read this text. I can't help but making some incredible, powerful, stunning observations about a man who just rises up out of nowhere, what? Full of the Spirit, a man who passes the character test to be a deacon and gives his life fully to God and makes an unbelievable difference. And guess what? Jesus didn't choose him to be in the inside group of 12. He was the first layman rising. And this incredible history book of the early church grabs Stephen and says, look at him for two extended chapters, some of the longest chapters in the book. Focus your attention on a minister in the church, on someone who served, and in his service, paid the dearest price because he dared to speak the truth of Jesus Christ. So this morning, my aim is to challenge you to think about your legacy, about how to end well and for the glory of God. Let me give you this definition of legacy. And by the way, it's fascinating. I expected that when I went to, like, to Google the word legacy and asked for a definition of legacy that I would get things about reputation, etc., etc. You know what I got? Almost entirely what you leave to your kids monetarily. I was stunned. Because the word has such deeper and richer ramifications. And I mean the deeper and richer ramifications this morning. That I think we can mine out of Peter's life. And here's the definition I'll give you. Legacy is the lasting message or impact of your life. It's what people think about when you're gone and your name is mentioned. That is your legacy. It's not the story that you write. It's not an autobiography. It's a biography that other people write. 
How will your legacy, your biography read? What will it be? What will you be remembered for? What were you passionate about? What did you care about? What did you build your life upon? What did you build your life around? God's definition of legacy is exceedingly personal. So in light of this story that I've shared with you, I make these observations. Four simple observations about legacy. The first one is this. A godly legacy is built on the foundation of godly character. Okay, a godly legacy is built on the foundation of solid Christian character. You back to chapter five or chapter six, verse five. What's it say? They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. This was a man who had a reputation of being fully on for God. He was all in, as we say. Fully devoted, fully committed. When they wanted to find fault in Stephen, what did they have to do? What were they forced to do? They were forced to pay people to lie about the character of Stephen in order to take him down. Now folks, if you're going to die because of things people said, may they be things that are true. And if they're going to say negative, negative things, may they have to create them. Stephen lived a life that was just, it was saturated with the work of the Spirit of God and the work of the Spirit of God was causing to flow out of Peter's life a character that was enviable. And when they wanted to take him down and wipe out his life, they literally, in two verses, verse 11 and verse 13, they secretly persuaded some men to say, verse 13, they produced false witnesses who testified. What does that mean Peter was living like? Or who was, he living, who was Stephen living like? He was living like Jesus. When they wanted to take out Jesus, what did they have to do? They had to produce false witnesses. Why? His life was pure and holy, and Stephen's life was just like that. Can I give you a warning concerning character, especially dads? Godly legacy is not built by focusing on how you desire to be remembered or appear. It's not you sitting down and say, here's how I want people to remember me. You know what that will produce? That will produce pride and failure every time. A godly legacy is found by saying, you know what? I'm all in for Christ. And I believe this with all my heart, dads. There is no substitute for your life. And I don't mean the whole thing. I mean the daily decisions that are who you really are. There is no adequate substitute. The only way to affect the next generation and to leave a legacy that is transformational and that deeply affects our children is by faithful, God-glorifying, God-exalting obedience. It's not you sitting down and saying, here's how I want to be remembered. It's you saying, God, I'm going to give my life fully to you. And I don't know how I'll be remembered, but that's not the issue. The issue is that I am all in with you and I want to live for your glory. Let the legacy write itself. Because it will. It will. I often think in pastoral counseling, especially of young people, that I could do what I can't do. I would love to drag, drag dads into the other room and let the door cracked open so they can hear the devastating effects of inconsistency, of anger, 
of a lack of love, of self-centeredness, of the pursuit of career at the expense of family. I wish people could hear that you will be remembered. The question that we need to ask ourselves is this. What will I be remembered for? What will I be remembered as? As people reflect back on my life. And I would say that there is, is no substitute for the foundation of godly character. Second thought is this. The legacy that you leave is built over time. We live in a culture, we live in a world that I believe by and large places too much emphasis on singular big decisions. Okay, now let me, let me be careful as I say this. Okay, I believe there are singular decisions that you can make that will destroy your life. Okay, when you think of King David, there are things that you think about that taint his reputation. Is that not correct? Big decisions that affected his life. Okay, but I, I believe this with all my heart. I believe the lasting impact of your life, the lasting message of your life, is not the big mistakes that you make. It is the daily, God-centered decisions that you choose to make over time. In other words, it's not something you can get to the end of your life and say, I'm going to make one whopping big good decision. And that's all everybody will remember. They may remember it, but it will not shape their life. Okay? It will not shape their life. Okay, it's in the small decisions, the little parts of the puzzle that all, when they're put together, make up who you are. And it is that larger picture that the next generation will remember. The legacy of our lives is made up in a series of much smaller and seemingly less significant decisions that are made on an hourly, daily, weekly basis. And with your kids, at home you have 18 years to make an impact. And those 18 years are made up of 365 days. Those days are made up of 24 hours. And those hours are made up of minutes. And in those iterations and interactions and discussions that you have with your kids, when you're choosing what you love and what you don't love, when you're standing or you're not standing, when you're angry or when you're happy, when you're reacting to your wife or responding to your wife, you are shaping the lives of your children. I don't think that Stephen hit a grand slam on this day simply based on what he did that day. Because you couldn't become part of the diaconate ministry in the church apart from passing a test that dealt with character and quality in your life. That was there. That was a shaping aspect of his life that had been developed over time. It was recognized by those in leadership and they put him in a position where he could be trusted to serve. And in that position... He built his legacy. I don't talk about country music much. I don't listen to it a lot. But I do listen to it sometimes. Borrowed my brother's Ford truck the last week and a half, and I had country music on a lot. There's a great song that is called, I think I got the title of this right. It's called, I Was Watching. Anybody hear that song? No, whatever they were doing, the girls were afraid as I was watching. Dad, you can think this all you want, that your little decisions don't matter, that secret decisions don't matter. You're wrong. 
The legacy that you leave for your kids is built day by day. It's how you treat them in the morning. It's how you treat them when you get home. It's how you treat your wife in front of your kids. My greatest corrector, my daughter Jessica is home. My behavior is a lot better lately. (laughs) My wife thinks the month of May was awesome. Wonder if Jesse really needs to go back to school. She's pretty smart anyhow. Which proves that my wife contends towards selfishness. I'm kidding when I say that. Okay, don't call me and tell me I shouldn't have said that. Here's the encouragement I want to give to you dads. And this is a conviction that has come over me as I've gotten older. More mature. Older is not right. It is this. It is never too late to start to build a legacy. Jim, I think of you coming to Christ recently. Okay? If you're like me, you've made mistakes. Okay? It's never too late. It is never too late. I watched my dad today. I'm 51. I know I should be over it, but I'm not. His life still speaks to me. So if your life is characterized by a failed legacy, if what your kids have been impressed with is horrendous, you can change it. If you're willing to make choices that exemplify godly character, you can make adjustments. I personally don't believe it's it's never too late with God. Therefore, it should never be too late with us. Start to build a godly legacy. Do it in the daily decisions of your life because the legacy that is godly is built over time as is a horrendous legacy that people want to forget but can't. All of us saddle our kids with a legacy. All of us do. Stephen saddled the early church with a legacy. And what a powerful legacy he, he laid upon the church in giving his life. What did he say? Stephen's saying, I'm all in. This is the truth about Christ. You must reckon with this truth. If it cost me my life, so be it. So that other lives might be saved. Third, a godly legacy is built by pursuing the approval that matters most. And oh, how we are shaped by the approvals that we desire, aren't we? For our teenagers, we would call it peer pressure. With the indication at some level that adults are free from pressure. Well, that's a lie that needs to be outed. Every person is affected by other pressures in their life. Every person craves the approval of others, especially the people that say by how they carry themselves or by what they say, I don't care what people think. That person is in serious trouble. Because if they didn't care what you thought, they wouldn't have to tell you. Okay, we are all shaped by our desire for approval from somebody May God be the one that we want to please. May God's approval be the approval that we seek, that we crave, that we desire above everything else. Now what's fascinating in this account is this. From the Sanhedrin, what is Stephen experiencing? What would you call it? What are the words that you would call to describe people that throw stones at you to kill you? Persecution. Hatred. Invective, disapproval, right? 
disapproval. So before the highest court in his environment where he would love to have acceptance and approval, Stephen stands for the truth. I'm tempted to say Peter over and over. Stephen stands for the truth, right? He receives disapproval from men. But what does he say? He looks, where does he look? He looks to where he's been looking his whole life. That's why his life is characterized by godly character that sustains him. He's been looking there all the time. It wasn't saying, I got myself in a big mess, get me out of this. What was he looking for? The same thing that a kid may do on the baseball field. If he looks to his dad and say, was that right? Without words, just the, did that work? Right? What is Stephen? He looks up. The court on earth, sitting, condemned. The court in heaven stands. And says what? I approve. And folks, the approval that you crave... The acceptance that drives you, shapes your character. That's why peer pressure is a serious issue for our young people. It's why it's important that you do watch the kinds of people that your kids hang out with and you be sure they get with good pressure. Young and old. Stephen had the approval that mattered most. And here's the thing, I think, the thing I think that we learned from seeking the approval that matters most. It may cost you dearly. It may cost you relationships to say, you know what, I'm all in for Christ. God's morality is my morality. God's view of finances, my view of finances. God's love for the church, my love for the church. And when you start to make decisions like that, you're going to realize, you know what, not everybody stands and applauds such a life, but one does. The one that matters most that affects not your temporary life, but your eternal life, stands and says, one day the Apostle Paul, I want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. In Acts 20, in verse 22 to 24, if you want to flip there real quick, you can. The Apostle Paul speaks about his driving motivation in this life. Acts 20, verse 22. Here's what Paul says. Okay, what approval did Paul seek and how was he going to gain it? Here's what he says. And now compelled by the Spirit. This is the end of his life. His preparation for his last missionary journey. This is his last trip to Jerusalem where the Sanhedrin is that he is no longer a part of. And now compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem. And not knowing what will happen to me there, I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardship are facing me. Okay, that's Paul's life. That's the roadmap that God has let him see into the future. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I may finish the race and complete the task that Christ has given me. What is that, Paul? The task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Now, what is Paul's legacy? Paul lived to make Jesus known in spite of the cost. That was his legacy. Whose approval is he looking for? The one that gave us the Great Commission and said, go into all the world and preach the gospel. Paul's legacy, he never stopped doing it. Would you not love to be in a place where you can say, my life matters little to me? I don't mean in the sense of, I want to end my life. I hate my life. I just No. But 
hanging on to my life is no longer important because I love Christ more than anything else. It was a life-shaping, consuming passion for the Apostle Paul. Your life is shaped by the approval that you are seeking. And the last thought is this. A godly legacy has a long reach and a broad impact, as does a bad legacy. A godly legacy has a long reach and a very large impact. What do I mean? Well, you have to look in the text to see what Paul means. Verse 58, second half of the verse. And this takes me back to the beginning. A member of the Sanhedrin is Paul. Okay, verse 58b of chapter 7. Meanwhile, the witnesses, those that had protested against Stephen and now were taking his life, laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Okay, go to the beginning of chapter 8. Saul was there at the stoning of Stephen, congratulating, giving hearty approval to his death. Okay? Saul is standing there, who will later become Paul the Apostle, who transforms the world. Okay, he is there. Who's ministering to Saul in this story? Stephen. How is Stephen ministering to Saul? Notice what Stephen says. In verse 59, while they were stoning him at the leadership of of this man Saul, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and he cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Do you get any parallels? I mean, powerful. Folks, understand this. When you get to the end of chapter 8, there's a man named Saul who comes on the scene who is arrested by the very, very presence of Christ and is completely changed. And we think, oh, that happened in a vacuum. Oh, no, it didn't. Paul had to watch Stephen die. Paul had to watch over his death, had to give hearty approval to it. It was part of the Sanhedrin where Stephen went through the entire gospel and accused Saul of killing Jesus. Did Saul ever forget it? What did it do first? First it made Saul angry. It made him mad that he could be accused of doing something wrong. Murder? What did Paul think of himself? A self-righteous man according to the law. What had Stephen done? This layman. This nobody. He called his card. Did Paul ever escape that conviction? Of the sermon that Stephen gave. You killed the Son of God. But in his death, what does Stephen do? Stephen acts like God. Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. Folks, is that not the heart of Christ? It it, it amazes me. Because you look at Saul's conversion, you think, oh, well, God just came out, snapped this bright light on, blinded him, drove him to the ground, and everything became clear. In that moment, no. No. Somebody had courageously unfolded for him the truth of his own sinfulness 
a short time before this. And when Jesus confronts him, what does he say? Who is this? It's Jesus. I repent. I own my sin. I want to build a new legacy. And folks, it is astonishing to me that a layman in the early church who was a deacon who served others and was chosen for that purpose, who had godly character but was filled with the Spirit of God, was the instrument that God used to reach into the life of, kings, of, of Saul and say, you're going to become my servant. It's, what do we, we look at someone like Stephen and say, well, he's, he's kind of a low-level guy. He can't make a big impact. It's not Peter or John or James. But what did God do? God chose one of the average people to leave for you and I a legacy that says what? You don't have to be the Apostle Paul. You don't have to be one of the 12 apostles to make a difference. To leave a godly legacy. God can and will and always does use just about anyone. And good night. I think to myself often, he uses me occasionally. That's humbling. Causes me to bring tears sometimes just early in the morning just thinking, what am I doing? I can't do this. I can't fulfill this task. What does God do? You're not getting out. Do it. That's that's what he does. That's God. Stephen was all in. He surrendered himself fully to Christ. And his life made an incredible difference. Heard a story in the year 2006. Six years ago. I was in uh, Colombia with two of my pastor friends with a guy named Noe Acosta, who was a guy that was studying for the priesthood and was converted by the gospel, gloriously married a lovely lady, and now is serving Christ, leading a ministry to South America called Gospel Through Colombia. Amazing life. When I was in Colombia, I had a very fascinating thing happen. I don't want to introduce this little story by asking you a question. How many of you have ever heard the name Burke? Parsons. Ever heard the name Burke Parsons? He wrote a book about three years ago called Assured by God. How many of you have ever heard the name Justin Timberlake? Okay. At 16 years old, Burke Parkins was selected to become part of a boy band called the Backstreet Boys. You know the name? He was uh, recruited by the guy that was the promoter of this new group that was going to be the replacement for the Beatles for the next generation. Thought about it. God had gloriously converted this young man's life. Went home to his church. He went to a Mennonite school in Sarasota, Florida. Went home and shared with people the literally golden plate that had been set before him. Started to pray about it. Many people in the church says, wow, looks like God's opened a really great door for you to serve him and giving you a public stage. And what the most people in the church say, oh, go for it. Did anybody ask him what he would be singing? Anybody ask him what he would have to do? The answer, no. At 16 years old, the principal of the school pulled him aside and said, I don't believe God wants you to do that. Two days later, he went and withdrew his contract from the man that was organizing this, was screamed at, yelled at, literally broke down in tears in front of this enormous, powerful man in entertainment who was frosted because they had written their biographies, had already promoted everything. And Burke Parkins was like, you know what? God doesn't want me to do this. 
I'm leaving. I'm not doing it. At 18 years old, this is where the name Justin Timberlake comes in because you're thinking, does that matter? At, six, at 18 years old, two years later, family had gone through a lot of financial crisis. And he was called again by this guy who had literally disowned him, had treated him like a son, literally disowned him. Guy called him back because he recognized the talent that Burke Parsons had. He said, I'm thinking of starting a new music group. That will replace the Backstreet Boys because that's not going as well as we thought. You will become a multimillionaire if you join this group. Name of the group is In Sync. Was to be the lead singer, Justin Timberlake's role. In his testimony about this, he shares with how he wrestled much harder at 18 than he did at 16. Talks about coming out of a movie theater with the girl he'd gone to see a movie with sitting in her car, watching an older man struggling around the parking lot, aimless life got in his car and took off. Next day, went and turned down a multi-million dollar contract. Because here's what he said. He said, I can't sing this. Well, let me read for you what he said. His words are better than mine. Here's what he said. What sheet did he say? Oh, he said it on this sheet. Sorry about that. Here's what he said. He said, still the same questions were running through my mind over and over again. How can I serve God and the world? God and fame. God and money. How can I sing those lyrics, dance and shake for young, impressionable girls? My answer was simple. I can't. But I know the Lord will sustain me because the concern of his family and everybody else was, you'll be set for life. Do it for three or four years. The thought in his mind was, can I do what they're doing on stage and love Jesus? He said, I can't. Simple answer, but I know the Lord will sustain me in serving him in the world if that is God's will. By the way, he knew he was called to the ministry from a young age. In 2006, I met this man, Burke Parsons speaking to a group of illiterate pastors in Columbia, about 40 of them, sharing the gospel of Christ. Didn't even, no way talked about, him, about Burke. Burke would not talk about himself. He said, I am not going there. He ends his testimony by saying this. He says, for years, hanging behind the door of my study was a framed picture someone had sent me of the Backstreet Boys when they appeared on the cover of Rolling Stone magazine with their pants down and the caption, boys on top, catch the innuendo. Under that picture were our Lord's words. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? So you sell your soul, you litter your life with guilt, and if you've ever followed the story of the people in Sink or Backstreet Boys, it is horrific. Horrific. Burke Parsons has made a choice. Stephen had to make a choice. You and I, every day, we make a choice. And every day, Dad, your children watch. You make choices. And so the question that we end with this morning is this. 
Am I living for what, as Stephen did, for what really matters? Am I really all in for Christ? Dad, what will you be remembered for? When it's all been said and done, Mom, what will you be remembered for, young person? In your school, what do you want people to think about you? What do you post on your Facebook page? What reputation do you crave? Because it will rule your life. Is it the pursuit of a nest egg or security or the advancement of career or an enjoyable, secure retirement? Is it the pursuit of a bigger paycheck? Is it outburst of anger? Is it being a nice guy at work? Is it being popular at school? Great grades, athletic fitness, good looks, not something I personally struggle with. Ability to argue politics for completing your bucket list. What do you want to be known for? Or to be known as a passionate man for Christ, woman for Christ, young person for Christ, who is being shaped by a life-altering love for Christ. By a growing desire to give all that others may know Christ. To live a selfless life of service. That the gospel might become magnetic. To be bold and courageous in sharing the most important truth that may cost you your life. Stephen went down saying, I see Jesus standing. And folks, how do you want to die? How do you want your life to end? What do you want your kids to remember? Are you investing your life in what really matters? With the caveat that it is never too late to start. Never. Because as Stephen prayed forgiveness for forgiveness for his killers, so Jesus prayed for forgiveness for each one of us. And I think it is important to end this discussion by saying this. Stephen was not under any illusion that he would find eternity with God by dying as a martyr. He was under no illusion that his death for the cause of Christ would earn what Jesus Christ had already accomplished for him. He died because he knew his future was secure. Is that not awesome? And in his death, slayed the heart of of the guy that becomes the Apostle Paul with the good news of Christ. Called his card courageously. And perhaps months later, I don't know how much later, months later perhaps, the Apostle Paul is met by Christ, remembers the message, and is completely changed. One by a layman who shared the love and grace of God. Does what I live for really matter? Father, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for the example that is recorded for us in the life of Stephen Stephen. 